So we are continuing our studies in the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 9, and we're picking up at verse 6, and we're going to read from 6 through to 13. And uh, before we do that, again, let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd help us to think these things through, and that uh, our meditations would be blessed, and the words that come from my mouth would be helpful. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul has been speaking about the, how the Israelites, his kinsmen, um, are, are, have many blessings in verses 4 and 5. Um, and then he says in verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children, not, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when, also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac... Uh, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Uh, so we have discovered that as we have been uh, studying the, the letter of Paul that's central to the Christian life is real faith, real living faith. And it's not just uh, faith in some vague, non-specific sense, as though just faith in anything is somehow virtuous. Uh, but it's faith, of course, in Christ. Faith in his saving work for us, in his person, who he is, and what he came to do. And uh, that's what we call uh, saving faith. And it's faith, of course, in the promise of God that is still being worked out in history and will come to ultimate fulfillment in eternity. Uh, it is the, there's no point in faith if you don't have the promise. And it's the promise of God that is fundamental uh, to that. However, I'm, I think I'm right in saying, probably right in saying that uh, probably all of us have had moments in our Christian lives where we wonder whether God is really going to fulfill all that he has promised. Uh, maybe had doubts about that. And uh, so we read a text of scripture and we find another instance of a promise and we think, what, when, if ever, is that going to happen? When Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, and we continue to pray for the building of the church. And yet, it seems that for many years, uh, it's been a struggle to, to see the church built. How is that going to be fulfilled? Um, so we, we, we kind of live with some of these 
kind of struggles that God has promised. This is what we're looking at with, uh, uh, with Abraham in Sunday, Sunday mornings a few weeks ago, is that uh, he gives, he's given the promises, but you're thinking, how on earth is God going to fulfill these promises? How, how is he going to see it? How are we going to see it? And when it comes to uh, chapter 9, verse 6 onwards, um, this is a kind of question that Paul is, is dealing with. Um, and you might remember that last week, we, when we looked at this chapter, uh, the last first five verses, we, we got that sense of the, the deep anguish that, that Paul feels for his fellow uh, Jews, his fellow Israelites, if you like, his kinsmen, um, the people that he are his cousins, if you like. And, uh, and he, 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 he outlines how it is that uh, you know, his people have had so many blessings in the past. Israel has had so many uh, blessings and privileges conferred upon them by God. Verse 4, they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh, Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And, uh, and yet they seem to have rejected the gospel that Paul is now, of Christ that Paul is now preaching. Um, Abraham was, uh, of course, pro- uh, just an ordinary fellow, but he was, he and later generations were promised so much. Uh, but Paul finds that f- when Christ has come in fulfillment of all of those promises, his own people don't seem to believe. Uh, many of them just turn against him. You read that in the book of Acts. You find him going to the synagogue and teaching and preaching. And they'll take it for a little while, but eventually they say, we've had enough. And kick him out. And raise a, raise a rowdy crowd to, cast, you know, to drive him out of the city. And you might ask the question then, if you're a Christian, you're saying, has God's purpose then failed? Well, that's really what's behind this uh, verse 6. It's not as though the purpose of God has failed. No, the word of God has failed. The word of God has been given and the promises made, and yet it seems on the face of it that, that they haven't, they've come to nothing. Now, it's not that Paul doubts the answer to that question. He's, he's very clear, and we'll see how he's clear uh, in a moment. But he's a wise enough pastor, I think, uh, to know that his readers will ask this question. And maybe you're asking that question today. It doesn't mean that God's promises have failed if Israel, or the kinsmen of Paul, reject the gospel. Where is the saving power of the gospel amongst his people? How can we know then if God will keep his promises to us today, if that's true of the Israelites? So it's a very important question. Has the word of God failed And in this passage, Paul answers the question, and he does so very simply in verses 6 and 7. And then he goes to show how the answer comes out of Scripture in verses 8 through to 13. So three things I want to draw your attention to uh, this afternoon. And the first thing is that Paul shows us that there is Israel, and there is Israel. There is Israel, and there is Israel. What do I mean by that? Well, actually, 
it's the kind of thing that we say all the time, isn't it? Um, you know, I, I, could, I could pick up a violin and scratch a sound out of it and say, hey, I'm playing the violin. Well, um, but if somebody who's been trained in a violin picks up a violin and starts playing, then they really play. So there's a difference between playing the violin and playing the violin, isn't there? Um, and uh, in one case, you know that I'm, you know, I'm just messing about on a violin, but in another case, you know that somebody who knows what they're doing is, has a genuine gift and ability. And it's this kind of distinction, I think, that Paul is, is drawing out when he says in verse 6, um, <clears throat> not all descended from Israel belong to Israel. And you see what he's saying there. There is Israel and there is Israel. There are two Israels, two ways of thinking about Israel. There is the Israel that is determined by lines of descent, generation to generation. And then there's another Israel. There's the true Israel. And the two things are not the same. And what Paul is saying here clearly is that it's possible to be an Israelite by birth, but it's, and yet it, not really to belong to the, the true Israel. <clears throat> and just to emphasize the point, he says the same thing in a different way when he says in verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. They're not all children of Abraham just because they're his offspring. It sounds like a contradiction, but you get what he's saying. Uh, there are those who are the offspring of Abraham, the descendants, and then there are the true children of Abraham. And just to be absolutely clear, in verse 8 he says that there are children of the flesh and there are children of God. This, uh, this means that, if, reading it here, this means that if it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. It's an interesting distinction. Uh, so he's saying, in summary then, that not all the Israelite people you see in the Bible, and even those you may see around you today, are necessarily the true Israel. Some of them might be, but it's not just your descent that matters here. And actually, I don't think this is a new idea. Uh, actually, Jesus speaks in those kinds of terms in John chapter 8. He's having this uh, uh, debate again with the Jewish leaders. And in Roman, uh, John 8 Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in me and my word remains in you, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Uh, So he's making a distinction between those who believe in him and those who don't. And uh, in verse 33 says, they answered, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So a distinction between true sons and those who are slaves who are no longer in the house. If you jump down to to verse 43, uh, Jesus continuing to speak and he says, Uh, Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. 
You see, for Jesus, it's not enough simply to be a descendant of Abraham. Because your true father could be the devil. That's how he puts it. And, and so not all Israel is Israel. Or to use a phrase that Paul uses in Galatians 6, 16, not all Israel is the Israel of God. Paul puts it like that. And this is the, the first answer, uh, part of the answer to the implied question, has God failed, or God's word failed because of all those unbelieving Israelites? And the f- first part of the answer is, not all Israelites are Israelites. So just bear that in mind. Now initially that may, that may seem to us like a sleight of hand, uh, that he's kind of redefined his way out of the problem. <laughs> Just give a different definition. As though he's saying the promises are for Israel, but this can't be true because they're rejecting the gospel en masse. Therefore, we'll just change the definition of Israelites. Well, what Paul does now is to, is to go on to show that actually this has always been a biblical idea. This has always been a biblical idea. Because Paul is now going to go on to show that the promise that God has made was never going to result in all the physical descendants of Abraham being blessed. So let's look at the promise of God in verses 8 and 9. Uh, and for this, Paul goes back to the promises made to Abraham. And it's a, you know, it's a wonderful story. We'll, we've looked at it on Sunday mo- mornings uh, recently. Uh, which you can read from Genesis 12 onwards. Where Adam is plucked out from nowhere. Um, and given promises from God that he would have a land and offspring. And his offspring would be a blessing to, he, he would be a blessing to the nations. Uh, all over. And, uh, and as you may know, the great, there was a great obstacle in the way that, humanly speaking, uh, Sarah was past childbearing age. And uh, she, she was barren. She'd had no children. And as the years went by, they were getting older and older. And, of course, there was something of a false start in Genesis 16 when uh, Sarah hands over Hagar to uh, to Abraham and says, have a child by Hagar, my servant, and, uh, and maybe that's the way that God is going to bless you. God going to keep his promises. And so Sarah's kind of saying, I need to give God a helping hand with his promises, uh, so I'll concoct this idea. And Hagar can give my husband a son. And Hagar does indeed give birth to a son called Ishmael. Now, setting aside all the, the problematic uh, morality of all that, uh, it becomes clear that God intends for Abraham and Sarah to have a child themselves, against all the odds, as it were. That he still intends to keep his promise, uh, as he has given it. And so the story goes that, uh, in the end, Sarah does indeed conceive by the hand of God, and Isaac is born, the true child of the promise. Now this is the vital point that Paul is seeking to make here. That the true children of God, the people that God will use and will draw into uh, the fullness of fellowship and relationship with him, are those who are the children of promise. Those who are the children of promise. Not merely those who have the right parents. 
but those whom God has chosen in fulfillment of his promises. Now the idea of the promise of God and its step-by-step fulfillment is actually a thread that runs through the whole of Scripture. I hope we've begun to see some of that when we're looking at Genesis. The promises grow and develop as time goes on. And that while, many, uh, while the setting for many of the events in the Old Testament takes place within the nation of Israel, the real work that's going on is God's work of creating the children of promise amongst that body of people who are chosen by God's sovereign choice. And they're the ones that are going to enjoy God's eternal salvation. So when seen in this light, the word of God, the promise, has not failed. In fact, it's right on track, as ever. God is fulfilling his promises exactly as he intended to to fulfill. Now I can imagine that for some of us that may raise many questions, and it may even disturb us. And so there's much more to say about it, and it may disturb us even more, and we're going to look at some more of that. But let's think now about God's electing purpose. And this is verses 10 through to 13. It's the third thing I want to draw our attention to, God's sovereign electing purpose. And you see in verse 11, uh, at the second half of verse 11, all of this is done in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. And I say sovereign because it is God's totally free and unhindered choice that he chooses some for eternal salvation. He is not restrained or constricted by anything in his creatures. It is purely down to his sovereign choice. And I remember as a young Christian, not long after I was converted, uh, as a teenager, as a student at university, and, uh, and discovering in the Bible this great truth that God has chosen a people for himself. That God, Ephesians 1.4, actually it was, that God chose us before the, God chose you before the foundation of the earth. And that is deeply disturbing. And yet, strangely at the same time, was greatly encouraging. It was disturbing because it raised all kinds of questions. But encouraging because I knew that I was in the faith. I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That God had come into my life. So God, in some respects, had chosen me. And the question that makes this quite disturbing, maybe this is a question for you. How How is that fair? If God chooses some and not others. How is that fair? How is it fair for him to grab some people and not others? And what's interesting about this passage, I think, is that Paul knows that that's a question for everyone. And uh, we're going to look at this next week, but verse 14 says, What shall we say then? Is Is there injustice on God's part? He knows that's a question in people's minds. Is God unjust in doing this? And we'll look at that next week. So you'll have to hold on just a little bit longer. But our immediate reaction does reveal something about our own hearts in this question. 
Because the truth is that for all of us under the surface of our lives and our hearts is that we secretly believe that there has to be something in you and in me that causes God to act on my behalf. As though there is some quality that I have that somehow impresses God so that he is moved to come down and reach out to me. That's the secret, that's the thing that's so disturbing. That actually the Bible doesn't allow us to think that. You know, it might be that I'm, you know, I'm intelligent enough. Surely God would save somebody as intelligent as me. Or I'm a really nice person. I'm a good person. There are many times I, I hear that on TV. I'm a good person. And how can God not come down to me and choose me? Or I have faith. So why would God not come down and respond to that faith and act? Because I have faith. Well, Paul destroys every such possibility in our thinking. That God, when he acts, he doesn't act on any of these re- for any of these reasons. Now let me show you, let me work through it and show you why. Uh, first of all, God doesn't choose you because of who your parents are. We see that in the way that Isaac was the child of the promise and not Ishmael. And that's really important, isn't it? Uh, Isaac was chosen, Ishmael wasn't, although they're both sons of Abraham. But it's not because of Abraham that, that Isaac is chosen. And we might be tempted to think today that, that I might be chosen because I come from a Christian family. That I'm from Christian stock, as it were. But that wasn't the case with Isaac. And it's not the case with you or me. And Jesus teaches us that in, in John chapter 8, as we've already looked, that This was not the case with the Jews. You could be a Jew and be a child of the devil. You can have Christian parents, and yet you may be a child of the devil. So God doesn't choose people merely on the basis of your parents. Secondly, it's not because of social class. We might look at Ishmael and think, well, he, w- he wasn't chosen because he was the son of an Egyptian slave girl. And he was the product of an unholy union between Abraham and Hagar. And therefore, he's somehow disqualified because of that. Well, that's not the reason. That's not the reason the scripture gives. It's not because of your social class or background. And thirdly, God's choice is not on the basis that you are older than your brothers and sisters. Uh, This idea of primogeniture. Uh, Primogeniture is that principle by which Charles will be king before Andrew or Edward or Anne. Uh, For the throne of the United Kingdom. 
But it was a common principle in the, in the ancient world. And we might think that might, uh, God might choose on the basis of who's the oldest son. But actually he doesn't. Uh, Esau was born first and then Jacob. But Jacob is chosen and Esau wasn't. So it's not on the basis of that qualification. And finally, God's choice is not on the basis of what you've done or how you've lived your life. And this is probably the most difficult one for us to get our heads around. Now, we might think that God may choose us and save us because we've lived well and served others and done good works. Um, and surely we say to God, surely I deserve to be saved because of my good life. And I can't tell you the number of people I've met in Solihull who actually believe that. I've lived a good life. Why wouldn't God save me? But Paul knocks that out of the park as well. You look at verse 11 again, and he says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. And that's true of Esau and Jacob. You see, before either of them could ever do any good works, before they were born, God had chosen Jacob. So works don't even come into it. Now, the choice was made before either of them were born, and the choice was communicated to Rebecca by a word from God before they could do anything. So, friends, what's clear here, and there's... There's clear evidence here from the Bible that the reason that God saves some is not because there's something in me or you. It's not because of my family, not because of my social class, not because of my age, not because of my good works, not even because I have faith. And it's, you know, that's a steamroller that comes and knocks down every qualification that we might possibly think of that we could raise up to commend ourselves to God. It flattens our pride Because the reasons for God choosing me are not found in me. They are found in God alone. Now if I'm a Christian today, he has chosen me because of his sovereign love and grace. And his sovereign free choice. And that's it. There's no other way of putting it. It's all of his wonderful, free, sovereign grace. And of course, he has already shown that if we deserve anything, it is to be subject to condemnation. That's true for everyone. The only thing we deserve from God is his condemnation. The condemnation of the law. And we deserve to experience the wrath of God upon us for our sin. No one is righteous. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what we deserve from God on the basis of who we are and what we've done is simply condemnation. But look how Paul puts it in verse 13. Jacob I have loved and Esau I hated. And this is a quotation, I think, from, uh, from Malachi chapter 1. And when we read this, we want to be able to read this as though Paul were saying, I love Jacob and I love Esau a bit less. But he's not saying that, is he? He's saying, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And, and it doesn't make sense of what Malachi goes on to say. Because God is intent on destroying Esau and for him to be under God's anger forever. And this is God's hatred for sinners. 
And friends, you know, the thing is, we just don't want God's justice, do we? Uh, Left to ourselves, we do not want God's justice. Because all that is there for us is condemnation. Now what we want is the free electing grace of God that will come and rescue us from our just deserts and come and save us. And of course that's the free electing grace of God. And that meant that the holy, righteous Son of God, Jesus Christ, needed to come into the world so that the justice of God could be carried out. Not because he deserved to endure the holy wrath of his father for sin. Of all the people in the whole wide world, he is the one person who did not deserve it. Yet he bore it on behalf of those people whom he had chosen. So if I'm a Christian today, he has called me out of his grace and grace alone. And God's justice is preserved by sending a saviour for me to suffer for my sin. That's the glorious thing about the gospel. There's nothing about me that makes me worthy, or you. It's all about God's unchangeable, unstoppable purpose. Has God's word failed? No. It's right on track. As the people whom God has chosen and for whom Christ died are called out of darkness into light through the sound of the gospel. That's why we need to be in the world proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is how God is carrying out his purposes. As he calls out his elect to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing picture. And we recognize you that you are God and there is none like you. And we recognize that uh, your sovereign power raises for us all kinds of questions. And it may even trouble us this evening to think that there's nothing in us that qualifies us for your salvation. But Lord, help us to see that you are within your rights to do as you please and to do so with justice and you do so through Jesus Christ help us to see that and help us to rejoice in your saving grace towards us we pray in Jesus name Amen